you're fed up with the nine to five. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career, but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. Hello, everyone. This is Business Breaks. And on this very special episode, we have two experts in retirement plans and litigation. First, we have Steve Rosenberg, a highly accomplished litigator with over 30 years of experience in commercial litigation. Steve has chaired the ERISA and insurance coverage litigation practice at two Boston firms and is currently the head of the Wagner Law Group's ERISA litigation practice. Steve represents a diverse range of clients in a range of ERISA disputes, including breach of fiduciary duty, denial of benefit, and deferred compensation matters. He is also an experienced commercial and insurance litigator, and with extensive experience representing clients in complex insurance coverage, insurance bad faith, and director and officer liability disputes. Steve is widely recognized as one of the best ERISA lawyers in the U.S., by the National Association of Plan Advisors and is the sole author of an award-winning blog on ERISA and insurance litigation. He's a sought-after speaker, regularly lecturing on ERISA and insurance issues at leading industry conferences. And our other guest today is Doug Luckus, an expert in providing training and guidance to plan fiduciaries related to ERISA and fiduciary liability. So join us as we gain valuable insights on how to reduce risk and protect your business. Get ready to learn from their expertise and prepare to face any litigation challenges with confidence. So let's dive in. Gentlemen, welcome to Business Breaks. Thanks for having us, Dante. Thank you, Dante. Thank you. And now for the listeners in countries that don't understand 401k or how they pertain to uh, retirement planning or if they don't have something similar can you describe what does 401k look like and also the size of the 401k market in the US sure so in basic terms uh, generally the 401k is a plan where the employer might contribute a little bit of money and then the employee also contributes their funds And basically, they're allowed to select the portfolio or select the investments that make the portfolio for their own retirement. And in the United States, there's about 600 and around 35,000 plans. And this fluctuates as the data changes and companies come and go. And you have about 87 million or so participants. And what's interesting is they're managing about 6.3 trillion in assets. So in my mind, you have very few people selecting quite a few investments for the participants to choose from uh, and managing a lot of assets. Wow. So basically, people, a lot of people are putting aside money for retirement. It's being managed by a few organizations, and uh, potentially they may not know <laughs> how well it's being managed. Well, so they manage it themselves. The participants manage it themselves. And the right. the plan sponsor or the plan fiduciary actually selects the investments that the participants are allowed to choose from. Mm. 
Thank you. And uh, I'm a complete outsider to this legal requirement. So I'd be very interested to know uh, from a CFO perspective, have CFOs unwittingly assumed these responsibilities without full understanding only to regret this later on as fiduciaries? And also, is this something, say, even a fractional or part-time CFO could be asked to assume as part of their employment duties? Yeah, very much so. It's it's a typical arrangement to have the treasurer or the CFO uh, take on the responsibilities for running the retirement plans, uh, the operations of the 401k, overseeing the committees of whatever size company, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, operating it uh, for the employees. And many CFOs are often surprised afterwards to learn that by doing that, they've actually taken on uh, personal liability if things go wrong with the plan. Um, so it's something that uh, in many of my cases, only after the company has been sued does the CFO discover whether fractional, part-time, or full-time that as far as the law is concerned, they were in charge of it and they carried personal liability for it. So usually the advice to CFOs is to be aware of that when they step into the role, whether they're part-time, fractional CFOs or not, and make sure they're being, one, properly compensated for taking on that risk, or else, two, are explicitly rejecting the risk that it's not being assigned to them as part of their job. Thank you, Steve. That sounds like a huge uh, potential personal exposure. And I guess, what are some common mistakes that fiduciaries make that can lead to that liability exposure? And you've already alluded to two of them in terms of upfront negotiating that employment contract. But um, are there any other ways that they can be avoided? Well, you know, the biggest thing when they first take the job and what we always tell clients when they're stepping into that role, Make sure there is sufficient and appropriate insurance. Make sure that's written into your employment agreement that the company will provide sufficient insurance. And also a promise to indemnify the CFO against any losses. It's sort of a belt and suspenders approach to make sure they're protected. The, and then there are all sorts of sort of mechanical or, or operational steps they need to be careful of. In, in the early years of the growth of this liability, um, you used to often see CFOs picking their outside vendors, picking their investment advisors and so forth based on what I used to call the golf course RFP. Basically, some guy invites them out for lunch and they have a day of golfing and they give them the business. Um, and buried in that, which they didn't know, are excessive fees and other problems. Uh, so they really need to treat it like any other very serious and important um, aspect of their job or of the company's expenditures and invest, you know, run a proper procedure, proper RFP, proper investigation, bring in outside expertise when you need it, and take steps of that matter, of that, those types to really make it run properly. That's the best way to protect it. So another thing that the CFO should really look at, I think, is some fiduciary training. And a little plug for Don Tron, he founded FI360. That's the designation I have, which is accredited investment fiduciary. But he's now the CEO at the Center for Board Fiduciaries. And that's at Wake Forest University. So he offers an outstanding program in whatever he does. That may be something they want to take a look at. The other thing I wanted to mention is what Steve had just talked about is the RFP process. 
And I'm a big fan of the SEC. The SEC actually puts out a bulletin. And I want to read you just, just a few of the questions so you can get an idea of what kind of questions a CFO might want to ask when they're interviewing an investment advisor. And Steve can maybe even throw in a comment here. So the title of this is Selecting and Monitoring Pension Consultants, Tips for Planned Fiduciaries. And this was actually put out in 2005. And I can imagine if CFOs actually followed this, Steve would probably have less cases, but I'll leave that for him to decide. So tips for planned fiduciaries. Here's three of the questions, Steve. So the first one, there's only 10. Actually, excuse me, 10, 10. But this is what the SEC recommends. The first one is, do you, this is talking to the investment advisor, right, the CFO, do you or a related company receive any payment from money managers you recommend, consider for recommendation, or otherwise mention to the plan for our consideration? If so, what is the extent of these payments in relation to your other income? Number four, do you have any policies or procedures to address conflicts of interest or to prevent these payments or relationships from being considered when you provide advice to your client? Number five, if you allow plans to pay your consulting fees using the plan's brokerage commissions, do you monitor the amount of commissions paid and alert plans when consulting fees have been paid in full? If not, how can a plan make sure it does not overpay its consulting fees. And number seven, do you have any arrangements with broker-dealers under which you or a related company will benefit if money managers place trades in their clients with such broker-dealers? So those are just a few that I thought were kind of pertinent to what we're talking about today. Right, and the, the interesting theme there for the CFO is what they're really all about is, is there any pay or play buried in the investment decisions and the selection of mutual fund options uh, that are being offered to the employees. Because one of the biggest sort of uh, blind spots for liability for anybody running a pension plan or a 401k plan state system, and particularly the CFOs who normally have a role in it, is how did the mutual fund options show up there for the customer, for the participants? You know. What relationship was going on? What revenue was being shared? How did it affect the fees? And that's been, you know, sort of the central part of most large-scale fiduciary duty uh, litigation over the past 20 or 30 years, probably since at least the time the SEC was publishing that book. Sure. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but sounds like it all comes back to uh, avoiding those conflicts of interest when you're actually selecting your uh, your uh, your agents as it were who who manage the plans right i mean theoretically the the cfo or any other fiduciary is supposed to be acting at all times in the best interests of the employee participant and those are the types of things you know obviously are depicted later in litigation as not really active sort of fee shifting and revenue. Yeah. And it sounds like a minefield whether you do it with intent, which obviously rightfully you should get punished, but unintentionally because you haven't made sure that you've protected yourself um, as a fiduciary. So how can a CFO ensure that their company's retirement plan is well designed 
and then structured to meet the needs of its participants, whilst also minimising that risk of fiduciary liability. So to me, it's it's all about compliance and more compliance. Uh, one of my partners likes to say that uh, outside of nuclear energy, this is the most regulated industry in the United States. If you follow all the rules and you check off all the boxes, you're pretty far ahead of the game as opposed to most competitors and most other CFOs, frankly. Um, but beyond that, you know, the, the biggest industry-wide problem, and maybe this is even more so for a fractional CFO, is the time commitment it takes. You know, you're, you're held to a standard basically of an expert in handling and running these plans. And often what we find is, you know, you'll see an agenda for the, for the meeting to discuss this, and there's a grand total of an hour, you know, spent in a month or the, the system doesn't expect the CFO to be an expert on all of this. They expect to, uh, the CFO to at least know his blind spots or her blind spots, know to go outside for experts who can provide information, who can look at the investments, who can follow the money and tell them when they're paying, where the revenue sharing is, and to really put the plan together. The, the best-run plans that we see really are CFOs who... Uh, have a good outside administrator, um, but then also have a good outside ERISA lawyer who they bring it to whenever they get recommendations of anything substantial from their administrator to take a look at it as well. That sort of belt and suspender approach really it keeps them out of trouble a lot more than uh, anything. So that's basically half. And when you think about it, there's the other half, which is the participants. And I have a little GAO study for you. So this was a study, and it was done not too long ago, back in 21. And so the GAO actually looked at this, and they said, many participants do not understand fee information, but the DOL could take additional steps to help them. And I just want to read you some stats, because Steve hit on one really key point, and that is the plans are run on disclosures. So if they're on disclosures, participants should understand them, right? So what does it really look like? And here's what the GAO found out. The GAO found that 45% of participants, now mind you, these are from large companies. They didn't go to small ones, though. These are large, well-run plans. 45% of participants are not able to use the information given in disclosures to determine the cost of their investment fees. Additionally, 41% of participants incorrectly believe they do not pay any 401k plan fees. So basically, you have 41% of 87 million people that don't even realize they're paying any fees. This is the point of where I'm going with this education. If you, you can kind of see it come together where you've got a plan running on disclosure for the benefit of participants. And at the very base level of understanding what your fees are, millions do not understand what they are. I mean, that's huge. That's fractions of $6.3 trillion, if coming back to your original point. And um, those people who are unaware clearly probably haven't been um, communicated to explicitly. And I understand it's it can be a complex area, retirement planning, you're basing it on future projections going out decades. But uh, at the same time, I guess it's all muddied as well by the fact that you've got members at different stages of their life uh, with different levels of contribution, which makes it harder to 
shall we say, armpit, uh, unless you're a unless you're an expert mathematician, maybe an actuary, uh, and maybe not. So thank you, thank you for that. It's um, I'm, I, it's boggling my mind, shall we say. <laughs> um, so, um, what are the strategies for maintaining compliance with ERISA? and um, say other relevant regulations when serving as a fiduciary uh, such as a CFO for clients with retirement plans? Yeah, you know, um, from a practical perspective, it's just too complicated for the CFO to track, you know, to, to basically make sure it's in and follow the money, find the traps. Basically, the litigation traps that the plaintiff's part is going to go in eventually. They have to use outside expertise. You know, in the largest companies, they can afford to bring someone in-house who just focus. But I, I'm litigating a case right now. I just took a series of depositions where the in-house legal department is very sophisticated. They have some idea of retirement plans, but not as much as they think they do. Uh, they're not full-time specialists in it, and they've made some serious mistakes. It, it's it's not somewhere you can work in part-time, um, so there's a real need to bring in outside expertise. There are very good vendors out there. There are very good TPAs out there. There are very bad ones. You know, particularly for the smaller company, it's very difficult to find a quality third-party administrator to run them. Many of them don't have the, the smaller ones who will service smaller companies don't have the back offices that they would well. So the real trick, I think, is for the CFO to vet and find quality outside expertise, both legal and operational, and to rely on them to actually reach out. This question has come up. You guys are the expert. I'm expected to be an expert. Tell me how to handle And I think the same goes when you think about the investments in the plan, is to have maybe a second look on the investments that you are providing. And there's plenty of investment advisors out there that do it on an hourly basis that can come in and look at the menu that's being offered for the participants, take a look at the fees, look at all the little details in it, and and go through it to make, to make sure it makes sense for the participants. And what's interesting is what Doug just described is what if you don't do what after the fact, some plaintiff's lawyers is exactly look at the fees, exactly the way Doug just said, find that there's a problem in them and sue you over. You know, Doug's is really the proactive approach. You do that first yourself, um, and you'll avoid the plaintiff's lawyers showing up later and doing it for you. Yeah, it just comes back to that old um, truism in business, get it done first time, and you ultimately get it right first time. You ultimately save that, uh, that cost and also that, headache of having to go back and go through it yeah it's the old you know the biggest thing in this whole area is the old you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure mm-hmm. completely thank you and then uh, probably coming to something off topic slightly but how could you leverage technology and data analytics to enhance the retirement plan performance as well as minimize that risk of fiduciary liability. Is that something that's been explored uh, in your um, experience? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because as I I mentioned earlier, the biggest problem for most CFOs isn't that they can't understand these topics or issues. They're certainly sophisticated enough uh, financial uh, experts to do it. It's the time commitment to do it all while doing the rest of their job. And technology is just going to, I think, 
increasingly serves a tool that lets them do it. I know that people are testing and getting used to uh, sort of AI products that can go through a 100-page contract and isolate specific ideas, concepts, facts. That will certainly the ability to grasp more you know, detailed data about the revenue sharing, the, the, the loads and so forth and the costs and be able to present them uh, much more quickly in a manageable and understandable framework will make their lives uh, a lot easier and make it a lot easier to be compliant. The flip side of that, of course, is not yet, but I suspect several years down the road, it's going to be expected that you do that. That's going to be sort of a base competency that if you didn't do that level of investigation using necessary tech, guess what? You didn't serve as a prudent expert and you fell down on the job. And now there's another window of life. So it's going to be a, you know, take with one hand, uh, give with the other sort of uh, aspect, I think, of a CFO's life. On the investment side, you also have things like the robo-advisors that are, you know, going to pick the pick it pick it for you, and maybe they use AI, maybe they don't. And the litigate that not the litigation, but the the government, I should say, when they're from what I've read, they've looked at this and said, well, it's a computer, it's not a fiduciary. So how are you going to take and shift fiduciary liability over to a computer? I don't know. And so some of these technologies are are great, and I'm sure they do a good job. I don't know if you necessarily want to take that leap until you have the rules in place to know where your liability is. And maybe Steve could talk a little bit about that. And it's, a, it's an interesting point because the, the problem is going to be, you know, you've got the robo-advisor and, you know, here's a simple answer. Punch in your data. I'm 27 years old. I want to retire at 37 and I want to be a 500 millionaire by that point. So how much do I have to contribute and what kind of junk bonds do I have to buy? And it'll spit out some answer. And of course, the answer will be absurd. You know, garbage in, garbage out. But at the end of the day, the RoboCop, I'm the RoboCop, the RoboCop <laughs> isn't going to be responsible for it. But the RoboAdvisor isn't going to be responsible for it. Someone in that system, either the investment platform that built that RoboAdvisor and sold it, to the CFO or the CFO himself, or most likely both of them, are going to end up the fiduciaries who are going to be held responsible for having understood what the heck was the robo-advisor doing? How did it work? Why did it spit out? And it's, again, they're not going to be able to hide from it. They're going to have to deal with whether this should have been something open. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, thank you. And that's, that's great insight because... AI and um, yeah, all these sophisticated algorithms, it becomes a bit of a black box. How does it work? And you don't just end up having to be a legal expert. You have to be a technology expert as well. So then the someone who spans those two very, shall we say, very complicated disciplines, it's going to be very rare to find someone who's capable of evaluating that properly. So I guess it can be a, a very much a double-edged sword <laughs> On one side, you may save time up front, but if it goes wrong, then you've got a huge amount of work to unpick, unpick all of that. I guess, what are those limitations of uh, Section 404C compliance in terms of protecting planned fiduciaries against liability for breach of those claims? And how does it relate to the selection and maintenance of those investment options within a plan? 
for those participants? Well, from from my point of view, you know, they really require uh, providing uh, sort of a selection of diversified investment options. That issue immediately rises of exactly what we're talking about. How many is too much? How few is too little? Um, are they right, you know, in terms of the risk tolerance? Of the, uh, we have a wide range of litigation where university retirement plans have been targeted, and a lot of them have massive numbers of investment options. But obviously, you know, you've got the, you know, the support staff in the, in the student cafeterias in the plan, and you've got tenured economics professors. So, you know, what's the right breadth of this material and this information? So you have those issues. You have the level of information, how much have you contributed there, uh, which you have to solve to get the control of that. Those are sort of the, the primary pieces. You, and then there's the issue of, you know, participant control. It doesn't protect you from everything as the CFO. It's really targeted at, you know, if the employee picks, you know, the junk bond fund right before the junk bond providers all go out of business in the downturn, instead of the nice balanced S&P, you know, 500, um, you know, uh, blended fund, that's not on you. As long as you've met all those requirements, you've given them enough information, you've given them enough options and so forth. So there's a lot of wiggle room. Um, but are there any other strategies for ensuring um, plan participants are educated about their investment options um, to be enabled to make those informed decisions about those retirement savings that they have? Right. And, you know, I'll, I'll let Doug speak to that a little more in a minute, but it really comes back to that same idea of how much information, get it to them, put it in intelligent ways, get it across to them, make sure they understand it. I think that's really central to it. It's, you know, it's a complicated area. The American system, which used to have pensions where professionals were in charge of this stuff for you, and at 65, you got a gold watch and a certain check amount every month is, is long gone. And now, you know, you have participants who are supposed to be able to figure this out over the course of their 40, 45, 50-year careers. And, you know, the only way they can do it is by understanding what, what's going on in these investments. So who's writing the disclosure? Well, the investment filer. And what are they doing? Well, it's not anybody other than an attorney writing it. And what are they going to use? Financial jargon, right? Maybe some accounting, and definitely some legal. Who is going to read this? <laughs> Who's going to read this? Right? In another language, it's got all these terms. What is this? Right? And so nobody wants to read it. And so this is where I'm saying it's a good base. And I've got another little piece here. This is from the SEC. It's called ask questions. There it is. I love it because it goes through stocks and mutual funds. It asks nine questions, gets right to the heart of it. And basically the answers are in the disclosures from the investment company in whatever language and whatever terms they want to use. Right. But the answers are here. And what are, what are they asking? So does the mutual fund invest in any type of securities that could cause the value to go up or down rapidly in a short period of time? They use an example like derivative. And so when you're looking at how you're going to execute this, 
I take these questions and say, all right, what if I take the questions that the investment, that the SEC really says are pertinent, right? And, and there's other sources that they lay it out real well. It's in uh, Reg BIBD and it's on my website and I can't remember the exact, but they list like nine things or so that a fiduciary, if you're in that role, should really inform the purchaser of what it is. And so the way I looked at this is I said, if I can go through these SEC disclosures, find the information, put it into a format, a video format, as a matter of fact, that answers these questions in just simple terms. Well, now a uh, participant can just play the video and without having to look at the disclosures and just understand it. And then you look at it and you say, well, okay, I've got some participants that are don't know anything. I've got others that maybe they've been with the company for a long time. So the way I looked at that is I said, well, what if you have three basic sets of fact sheets, just one page fact sheet, and they're kind of like beginner, intermediate, and advanced. So what does that look like? Well, you have videos, right? So let's say somebody's just joined a company. They have no idea about investment. And a fund of funds, may make the most sense, right? The portfolio is built for them. So now they could just say, I'm going to retire here, target date, or they could say I'm aggressive or moderate or whatever. And the fund does it for them. The SEC's got the disclosures. We can look at this. We can make heads or tails out of it. And we can quickly explain it to somebody. But if you have any kind of a program and the person's been there for any length of time, they should be able to advance. And by that, I mean, they should become an intermediate investor and they should understand at some point how to build their own portfolio, how to say, okay, I want so much growth. I want so much value. I want so many bonds and, and build their own. And this is where, again, the videos combined with the fact sheets and the SEC guidance materials comes together where somebody, if they want to, can easily put together their own portfolio. And then finally, you have more advanced investors. Maybe they've been in there for 15 years or longer. And, and here's my point to this. Maybe they're getting ready to retire. And they're looking at the risk of the stock market. And as this just said, derivative. So derivatives, while they sound complex, which they are, but this can be a nice hedge for people that say, well, I want some of the gains in the stock market, but I'd like to hedge myself. And so now they can actually understand what they're buying and buy the proper investment for themselves. So when I look at creating a program, it has to be custom to the plan. It can't be generic because everything's specific. You're not going to get sued on generics. And Steve, you can tell me yes or no, but you're going to get sued on specifics. You're, you're specifically charging too much. There's too much risk. There's something in there that you're going to get sued over and it's going to be specific. So to me, it's almost like you can't disclose it with just a bunch of gobbledygook. You got to disclose it in a simple manner where people can understand it, make heads or tails out of it and have an actual program that people can say, I start off here, I get to know a little bit more, I can build my own portfolio, and finally, I actually know how to protect myself. Absolutely. There's um, so much complexity across different asset classes and different, as you say, financial instruments and investment vehicles. And ultimately, someone, if you're not educated, someone else is managing it uh, for you. And potentially, every time you're performing transactions, there's a cost associated with that, which is obviously eating away at your fund as well. So the more speculative, 
If you want to do speculative, that's great. If you're um, saying the early stages and your risk appetite is higher because you've got less skin in the game, but then maybe the more mature investors who've built up their funds over a period of years, if not decades, they may have a different attitude towards their savings and they'll be more protective of that. Um, and there's ways of actually, I, I presume, as you mentioned, with hedging, maximizing the upside whilst minimizing the downside. So, yeah, as you get more sophisticated, you'd expect the performance of your fund to improve, but you wouldn't see that if someone else is doing all of that for you. They may move a senior investment uh, expert in whatever firm is managing your fund, or maybe they've moved on to another fund and you end up with a junior person who may not know everything of what they're doing. And there's probably a million and one variables to that that could would impact your your fund, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have line of sight of that. And and that, I think that's the key is the line of sight is what do these people actually know? I mean, what do the participants know? I I don't know. It's clearly from the GAL study, they don't. And I wouldn't want to be the CFO of the company that says 41 of my percent of my participants don't have any idea that they're paying any fees. Steve, would you like to defend that? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. What what you find in in the major class actions, right, when you where where they haven't settled and where they've gotten you know, courtroom decisions that have gone against the fiduciaries, the plan sponsors and the CFOs and so forth, is a mistake admitted to somewhere in the record by the CFO or the chairman of the committee in charge. In one major case, literally, the testimony was, I didn't know that. You know, and the answer is, you're the retirement committee. You know, I think it was the CFO. How can you not have known that? You know, you're out of luck. But, you know, this was a litigation that went all the way to the Supreme Court, came back down, took 12, 15 years to resolve. But when you read it all, that case turned on that piece of admission. You know, that I didn't know that about the, if he didn't know it, the participants certainly. Ouch. And that's not really a good defense when, you know, if the fiduciary didn't even know it, what chance does the participant have? And I guess for a CFO, how do they determine if their company's retirement plan fees are reasonable? And um, what are some of those best practices for fee disclosure and transparency in that line of sight? Yeah, so the, the DOL requires a certain level of fee disclosure. And from the CFO's perspective, to, to, in my mind, it's really a matter of getting quality outside uh, advisors who, you know, they all have their nice program and they can give you nice printouts, comparing the costs of, you know, each of your particular investment option to the market as a whole, uh, to other investment options, because, you know, that's central to so much of the litigation is how do the fees in the plan you offered compare? What else could you have purchased? You know, uh, how does the market normally work? As your assets grow, why didn't you negotiate a lower fee? market would have allowed you to do that? And really, CFOs need outside expertise. That's a time-consuming undertaking. Um, and there are companies out there, that's really all they do is track that, match that up, explain it to you. You know, because the CFO can always protect himself or herself by delegating as long as they're carefully a quality outside advisor and said, I did what a prudent expert would do. I went out and got someone who really was an expert to tell me that. And when it comes to the participant side, again, I, I just 
have to go back to the SEC. They've got a nice guidance bulletin. This one is how fees and expenses affect your investment portfolio. Now, if participants happen to watch a video, a short video explaining this bulletin, which is only a few pages, I would wonder, number one, would that help defend a CFO? Like, here's this video. It explains. They should know. And number two, how much of a percentage change, if any, would there be in the 41% that don't even realize they're paying any fees? If they just watched a simple video explaining, like, this is what it is. This is the effect that's going to have on you. Maybe the percentage of people that would pay attention might be a little bit more. I don't know. But something has to change in that. And that's, that's my thoughts on that. I, I think you're right. You know, it's funny. I'm a bourbon drinker. And I've read a thousand times, but I can never remember the difference between bourbon and whiskey, what the green is. But I watched a Netflix show the other night on the making of bourbon. Now I know, and I will never forget that it requires 51% corn. So it's the same thing, I think. You know, you change from, here's a paper disclosure of the fees to watch a short video. And I think that 41% number drops. I, I, and if I'm a CFO, that's what I would want. I mean, I'd want my participants to know, you know, it's, and it's as simple as you said, you watch a video and it sticks. Was that the Neat show? I think that was called Neat. It might've been, it might've been. They go back in the history to, you know, the first, you know, um, frontiersmen going to Kentucky and what are they going to do with their excess coin? They'll ride, so they turn it into bourbon. That's brilliant. You're getting me thirsty for a, a shot right now. <laughs> and sure, actually, sure. it sounds like a great idea, you know, maybe have a Netflix for uh, uh, investment plan education. <laughs> mm-hmm. One for the CFO and one for the uh, participants. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's great. Uh, how can a strong participant education program Uh, which is focused on that communication of the detailed investment information, help plan fiduciaries uh, coming back to that litigation defense and um, being sued under a breach of that duty of care under ERISA? Sure. Well, there's a lot of sort of steps that the plaintiffs have to prove along the way. At various points, it really gives the defense lawyers such as myself you know, room to operate. You know, the the simplest example I can give you is they have to prove there was some sort of causal relationship between what they didn't know and their losses. But if suddenly, you know, they're on the witness stand and you're asking them, did you watch the video? The metadata tells me you watched the video. Yeah, I watched the video. Did you see where it said that the the fees on this were 14% and that the market as a whole is normally 8%? Yeah, I saw that, but you bought it anyway, didn't you? Suddenly, they've got a problem. So those types of things make it a lot easier to protect the CFO or anybody else. So coming back to setting up that Netflix sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Well, it all comes down to the specific information. It's education about the investment. It's not principle-based in that, you know, what is it, save more, spend less? That's the classic line. The other one is, uh, you know, it takes 30 years to pay off a house, so you save over 30 years the mortgage. It's, It's all great. You know, it's all great stuff, but I don't know how much it's going to affect in court. And I certainly don't know how much that's going to help a person build a portfolio that they're going to retire on. I mean, what am I saving more into? I don't know. <laughs> say that. Because that was the famous, you know, it's been years since I looked at it, but, you know, that was the famous 
data from the DOL push to um, get fee disclosures out there in the first place was their models of, you know, if the participant, depart, you know, invests X dollars and how much they have in 30 years, if, you know, the fees are X versus the fees are X plus five, you know, there's a dramatic difference. It builds up over time. Yeah, and so there's... this information hugely affects the participant's ability to even do it right. Yeah. And of course, the more they put in, the more the investment plays, you know, the investments make more money. <laughs> Don't forget that, Steve. There's, there's a certain encouragement there, Steve. Certainly. I tell you, I've been in, in my younger days, before they, the investment advisors and platforms figured out, don't go in there and talk to these people in person. You know, I would be in meetings where, you know, the, the, they'd send in, you know, the investment advisors for the 401k plan. And I can't tell you the stuff we'd hear. I, at one point after the 2008 collapse, we we're basically told the market time. I'm like, did I, did I just hear you tell us a bunch of secretaries that they should be market timing? You know, he literally said, well, put the money in the, in the, the money market account in there and hold it till the market looks better. But I'm like, really? That can't be good advice. <laughs> I like the way you analyze that. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was obvious to me, right? You know, the point was keep putting the money into the account. Don't stop deferring. Yeah, right. We don't get our fees. Stop deferring. You know, it was terrible advice, clearly driven by their own financial interest. And this, yeah. I guess, this comes down to the back to what we were talking about earlier is is when you get decided on who you're going to use for the investment advisor, who you're going to use for the TPA, who you're going to use for the record keeper and all this other stuff, go out and find somebody else to take a look at it. <laughs> take a second look. And, you know, the more independence you bring in. So, for instance, there's many companies that offer, well, you know, you bought our program, we'll give you this free education. And, oh, yeah, and you're going to be 404C compliant too. Look at this. And then you say, well, okay, well, 404C doesn't exactly work that way. It says sufficient information. What do you think is sufficient? Well, it's this disclosure that the uh, DOL says we need to give them. That's it. Well, you know, Steve can elaborate on how much protection that's going to give them. I don't right. know. I probably, you know, some of it's the eye of the beholder of the judge or the, the jury, but the reality is, you know, the plaintiff's lawyers are going to say, and it's very persuasive that that's not much. That's not sufficient for them to figure out how to make a decision. Because 404C at heart is about their right and ability and freedom to make decisions, they being the participant employees, and the fact that you as a fiduciary or the CFO shouldn't be held responsible for losses that come from it. Well, if you think of it that way, if you haven't given them enough information to make an intelligent decision, then the purpose hasn't been met, and why should you be protected? The plaintiff is going to show up with my GOA report. Nobody <laughs> understands anything. <laughs> well, they're going to show up with the legal jargon written by the in-house lawyers at the mutual fund companies and say to the participant who's up on the witness stand, do you understand what any of this means? Nope. No. Did you have a comparison when it showed, you know, a, a four cents on the dollar or whatever it is uh, fee? You know, did you understand what the market as a whole or what, you know, did you know the difference between a retail class and an institutional class? Did you know you were paying retail class fees? You know, it's, it's your ducks in a barrel. And, and you bring up a good point. I mean, I think this is just being a little facetious here, but I mean, to come up with 12B1 fee, 
right? You already have A through basically Z, right? A shares, B shares, C shares. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if they ran out of letters. They just decided a letter and a number would sound good. I really don't know how they come up with the fees, but I'm sure there will be another one. ZZ maybe? I don't know. ZZ1. But... And this is this goes back to the complexity. I mean, the CFO who keeps up with this nonsense, right? You need an outside expertise to keep up with it and to communicate it. You know, it could be a full time job. You know, the fees are a whack a mole deal. There's always, as you say, another another letter fee that you've got to hunt down, figure out where it is. Oh, and then, and then even when you get to what it is, does it go anyplace else? Is it being shared? What is it based on? That that becomes a whole other issue, which kind of backing into it, when I look at answering the questions for a video, I go by the annual report or semi-annual report that states what they actually took out. Because otherwise you just, you could get a percentage. Like it could be up to 30 basis. Oh, what, what does that mean? It could be two. Nothing. That's what it means. Nothing. So if you wait until the annual report comes out, now you could say, this is the actual percentage that they did and they used. And now you have a real life number that I am sure a plaintiff's attorney would love to use. And so knowing it beforehand is kind of important. At least you could say, last year, this is what they did. I don't know what they're going to do this year. And that's the way I approach that. And, and it, it does. To, to take the information, literally, to answer the questions that the SEC says people should know and make them into understandable and simple terms, it, it is a bit of a trick. It, it does take a good bit of time because, first of all, none of the information is in one spot. You would think that when the SEC requires it, oh, no, there's plenty of disclosures. There's the annual, semi-annual, 10Q. There's, there's all kinds of places where the information is. And then a lot of it could be generic. And so now you start saying, well, what kind of fact sheets? What did, what did the actual fund put out? Because oftentimes when the managers are speaking, they'll, they'll say something and you'll catch things like, you know, there's going to be a change or they're, they're doing this or doing that. And it puts a little more clarity on the question that you're trying to answer. And of course, it's public information. It's, it's from the investment manager. So answering those questions to help people understand it is really a bit of a trick. Yeah. And it's, it's not just whack-a-mole. It's also trying to avoid those landmines <laughs> as you go along, especially if you're a fiduciary. And so uh, just to wrap up on the technical side, what are some best practices that you've seen when, you know, uh, someone is serving such as a fractional CFO as a fiduciary and they're being asked to assume this responsibility for a client's retirement plan and assume that personal liability? There are probably three basic steps. One, which we mentioned earlier, is make sure the company has sufficient insurance uh, protect you. Um, sometimes that can be a difficult market, depending on where the pricing is, but you can't take the job without it. I mean, that's a ridiculous risk. But not only get the insurance, but in the employment agreement, it needs to make clear that they have the obligation to do that. So if they fall down on it, you have another avenue to come back to the company. The next part is the documentation has to make clear that the company is required to indemnify for liabilities incurred in that matter. But then the sort of third step is you want to lay out in the paperwork exactly 
what extent of responsibility. If you're taking on the entire responsibility, that's fine too. But you want to be clear that you have the right to take bring in other expertise outside of it. And if others are going to have certain, you know, carve-outs that they're going to be responsible for, you know, say you're the CFO, but there are certain aspects of it, such as, you know, participant education that the person in charge of human resources is going to be in charge of. You want to spell that out because if you delegate it properly and lay that out in the papers, you can avoid carrying in 99 out of 100 cases the liability for that part. You want to basically lay a paper right that you're not doing this. You're not the one in charge. You know, so I guess in a short version, hire a lawyer when you start and make sure that those dots are all. You know, I, I just wanted to maybe make a couple comments and see what Steve has to say about this. But one thing common in, in my industry as the investment side is the advisors love to say, well, I'm a 321 or I'm be whatever, and I'm going to take over this fiduciary responsibility for you. And so, you know, it sounds great. Oh, all right. Well, there goes my uh, investment responsibility. This guy's going to take it on. This person's a, or gal's going to take it on, and they're they're an expert in it. Well, that may be true, but as far as I know, you can't fully abdicate your fiduciary responsibilities. Meaning that you have to at least monitor this person. Okay. And so, hard to believe, but I've seen it. You look at some of these contracts, and it says. You know, if you fail to monitor me and I make a mistake, well, it's your fault because you should have been monitoring me. I don't know how good that is now. That's kind of the impression I get from what I've seen and read. Yeah, I think thematically, you're certainly, you know, right on the money. So there are a couple issues going on. It's not just monitoring them, but selecting. Mm -hmm. So if the if the investment performance or the selections have so many problems in it that someone's willing to sue, they're really also going to have the evidence to be able to say, you should never have selected them in the first place. You still should have kept an eye on what they were doing. You didn't monitor it. Or it looked good on day one, but five years later, you never looked again. Come on. That got out of hand. Uh, the fees went up. The performance was poor. So there's no matter how they pitch it on the 321, um, they're taking on a limited role, and they already know how they're going to defend it, and you're still going to have a role in it. It's still going to be a sharing problem of who's pointing the finger at who at the end of the day. I have never in my career seen uh, an investment advisor, a platform, a TPA's contract, uh, even when it says we'll take on certain responsibilities that doesn't cabinet in a way that makes sure that uh, you're going to be in that dock along with mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like what they give you in the big print, they take away in the small print. War of the 338. We've got you covered. <laughs> okay, Just don't I, I, read page 32, line 7 that says, no, you're on a hook. I tell clients all the time, you know, big unnamed mutual fund companies that serve as investment platforms and so forth, they've got 300 ERISA lawyers who are doing nothing except sitting around all day writing these contracts and revising them and saying, hey, there was just a case in Washington State that said X. Let's put that language, you know. You don't. You know, you're just, yeah. you know, you're signing, you're putting in the place, you're the CFO. You know, this is one of 10 things you've got to look at on Tuesday. Exactly. And for CFOs, I mean, on the community, what they're interested in is driving business value, employing AI and advanced data analytics on financial data. 
this stuff isn't sexy for them. So, but it's it's big. It's a huge problem if they don't get it right. Right. You know, to my mind, you know, this is the next frontier in the calendar. With the baby boomers leaving the marketplace, you know, you're going to have to take care of this stuff. You're going to have to make sure the employees feel like the 401k is a good product, that you're taking care of it, that they have the information. And, you know, that's sort of the business value for the CFO, right? You know, this is a way we can help win the talent work so they're not going across the street to the other to the competitor. And here I'm going to play a bit of doom and gloom with all this AI and uh, short attention spans. Is there anyone who's going to have the, uh, shall we say, the will to and patience to actually take this on and invest the time to really understand these complex uh, clauses and implications? Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of my clients and some of the larger ones and who don't necessarily have 30 lawyer departments, but they have three or four lawyer departments. They make a focus on it. And the CFO's department is big enough. Um, they make a focus on it, but they also make sure they're using outside expertise. They never fly the plane on time, ever. So they're, you know, if you're large enough, you can share enough of the responsibility to get this. If you're smaller, you've got to bring this, or else just run the risk. I mean, that's really the only choice. Yeah, on the investment side, I'm just a big fan of, Hire a uh, fee-only, fee-only advisor. And basically, so if you think about it, a fee-only advisor, I like to equate it to an accountant, right? You go in, you see your accountant, you play a fat fit, flat fee. You don't say, hey, if I do 20% better on my tax return, you're going to owe me more. I mean, it's ludicrous to think of it. But that's how the entire industry that I work in runs, like... If I do better for you, I should get more. Well, no, I don't think so. I think I'm paying you an hourly fee. You should do your job. So I think really, I really stress that. And, you know, get educated. I, you know, it's not that difficult to pick up some education on being a fiduciary. It's out there. There's programs like Don's out there. Hmm. The fool pays twice, as they say. Mm-hmm. Or three times in this case. <laughs> oh dear. I don't want to. I don't mean to call that person a fool, but yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, it's it's very much a, a commercial thing where you try and save costs on the front end, and then downstream it just costs you more. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Yeah. Um, well, um, gentlemen, this has been an amazing conversation, and you've brought a very what I would. Well, I thought going into this a very complex subject, you made it very clear and understandable and relatable. And um, for the benefit of my listeners, our listeners, should I say, uh, if they wanted to reach out and get in touch, uh, what would be the best way to contact you? Sure. The easiest thing is an email or a phone call, uh, a quick Google of Wagner Law Group or Stephen Rosenberg should immediately take you to the firm's website with my content. And the same here. I appreciate you putting it down below the my website address. It's just fiduciary happy and me there. And by the way, if anybody needs any of the reference materials that I cited along the way, I know there was quite a bit from the SEC. I do have a good number of the basics on the website they can download and with a little explanation and kind of like where to go, where I'm citing this, because it's all it's all there somewhere and kind of like the digging's done for you. It took me quite a bit, but it's all right there and it's cited. And if anybody wants any of the guidance materials and they don't want to go to the SEC website or they can't find it, 
they can contact me through the website and I'll be more than happy to send it to them. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I will put all those links in the show notes as well. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much. Audience, this has been Business Breaks. You've been listening to Stephen Rosenberg and Doug Lutkus. Thank you. Thank you, Dante. Cheers. Thanks, Dante. This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT, and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.